Greetings, greetings in Jesus' name to all of you this morning. And I greet you in the name of the one who James refers to as the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. We'll notice that in just a little bit in James chapter 2. The last few words of the song we just sang uh, caught my attention because of what we'd like to look at this morning. We see a picture into the heart of God in those last few words of the song. It said, No more a stranger, nor a guest, but like a child at home. If you have accepted Christ as your personal Savior, then you can claim that for yourself this morning. That's how God views you. You're not unknown to Him. You're not just someone out there somewhere. You're not lost. You're not just a guest. He he considers you family. You're part of the family of God. You're a child at home. That's powerful. That's beautiful. No more a stranger nor a guest, but but you're a child at home. Okay, turn with me to James chapter 2. We're continuing our study here through the book of James. The title of the message this morning is The Peril of Partiality. The Peril of Partiality. And our text is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Follow along as I read. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory there it is, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves? And are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath shown no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Now some of you have heard of the name Mahatma Gandhi. I believe that's pronounced right. You can say it different ways. Mahatma Gandhi, who was a very famous and very influential leader in India. I found it interesting as I was studying to come across this story. I read that when he was a student, Mr. Gandhi uh, considered becoming a Christian. 
and he read through the Gospels, and he was moved by them. And it seemed to him that, that Christianity offered a solution to the caste system uh, that plagued India. Now, the caste system is a part of the Hindu religion where society is divided up into various into various divisions, okay, so based on wealth or occupation or social rank or so forth. Well, one Sunday, Mr. Gandhi went to a local church there, and he decided to see the pastor and, and ask for instruction on the way to salvation, on how to, how to be saved, how to find salvation. But the story goes, when he entered the church, uh, the, the ushers refused to give him a seat. Now, the church he, he went to that morning was a white church. And the usher said, no, no, you go worship with people of your own kind. And so Mr. Gandhi left and, and never returned. And this is what he said sometime later in reference to that. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. That was his take on that. Now, the truth is, this story illustrates the sin that James is writing against in our text this morning. Uh, and evidently, it was a problem in the church of James' day, but it, it certainly is still with us today. Because at the root of partiality is pride. Something that is still with us today, is it not? It's with each and every one of us. At the root of partiality is pride, which is a very real part of our fallen nature. And so the subject we are looking at this morning is partiality, or favoritism, or respect of persons. It may be, it may be listed in your Bible in different ways. In the King James here, it says, with respect of persons. Now, in general, partiality is favoring one group or favoring one person or favoring one party over another. It speaks of being biased. But the Greek meaning behind respect of persons or behind partiality uh, that we find here in this chapter, in James chapter 2, is to make unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another. To make unjust distinctions. That's, that's the Greek meaning behind this partiality, behind respect of persons. So in everyday, la in everyday language, it's talking about basing your treatment of someone, or, or you could even say basing your attitude towards someone. It's not just treatment, but it also has to do with our attitudes towards them. Basing that on something that should not be a basis. Uh, for how we treat them. Now, the key word in this, in this uh, definition here is the word unjust, making unjust distinctions between people. You see, simply making distinctions uh, between people by treating one person better than another is not necessarily sinful, is not necessarily wrong. Uh, for example... I treat my wife much better than I treat other women. Okay, is that sinful? Is that wrong? No, absolutely not. I think it's very fine and it's very good, and I trust all you 
uh, husbands out there uh, see it the same way. And so that's just one little illustration. But, but as we consider partiality this morning, we are talking about making unjust distinctions, unjust judgments by considering one person better than another. Now, it's, it's easy and it's common for us as, as proud humans uh, to hastily look at a passage like this and if the exact illustration that the writer gives does not directly apply to us, we feel like, well, it doesn't necessarily speak directly to me. I don't deal directly with that. And so we move on. We kind of brush it aside and we move on. And I say, not so fast. Not so fast. You see, partiality covers much more ground than simply relating to rich people or poor people in church. Now, that's, that's the illustration that James gave here. And, and from my understanding, he gave that illustration for a reason. That perhaps was what they were dealing with in particular there at his time, in his time, in some of the churches that he related to. Rich people, poor people, and their relationship, how they dealt with, how the church dealt with them in a church setting. But see, partiality covers much more ground than that. It is seen in many different areas of life. Sure, it's seen in wealth. It's also seen in social class. Uh, it's seen in, in skin color. It's seen in uh, the clothes that we wear. It's even seen in different ways of thinking. If someone doesn't think the same way we think, it may not even be wrong. <laughs> they just don't think like we think. Then we think that something's weird about them because they don't think like I think. And the way I think is probably the right way. And if you don't think my way, then I put you over here. Okay? It's, it's that kind of... And so as we think about it in the bigger picture, we realize that, you know what? This might affect us after all. <laughs> you know, this might come closer to home than we think. Maybe we, don't, maybe we don't struggle with the rich people, poor people in church. Maybe we do. I'm not saying we don't. Perhaps you don't personally, but yet it goes much broader than that. And so let's be sensitive to the nudgings of the Spirit this morning as we look into the Word. Let me just say that partiality is all about an outer critique. It's about an outer critique rather than an inner understanding. You know, we're so quick to pass judgment on people based on, on outer appearance or based on isolated happenings. I saw them do this one day, and so because of that, you know, or look how they look, and so... We're so prone to pass hasty judgment because of isolated happenings or outward appearance rather than lovingly seeking to understand them on a heart level. Ponder for a moment how God relates to you. How does God relate to you? Think about that for just a moment. You know, we see a picture into the heart of God, uh, back in the story that we find in 1 Samuel, when Samuel made a visit to Jesse's house, it was time to anoint a new king there in Israel. And 
the sons of Jesse started filing before Samuel. Here comes one, and the Lord says no. Here comes another, the Lord says no. Here comes Eliab. Now, if anyone would be the next king, it'd probably be Eliab, because he looks really good. He looks kingly. No, it's not even Eliab. And look what, look what the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. But the Lord looketh on the heart. Ponder for a moment once again how the Lord relates to you. And we thought about that a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago when Brother Elijah was here. And we, t- we, we discussed a little bit how, how that we often hi- oftentimes have wrong ideas of, of God and who he is and how he relates to us. And we found out that, no, we're reminded, hopefully it wasn't brand new to you, but we're reminded that, no, God is not that, that taskmaster up there that's, that's whipping us into shape and, ah, I got you, all right, mark you down, that's one sin, up another, you know. No, that's not God's heart at all. But it's a heart of love and a heart of, of seeking. It's a heart of mercy towards us. And it's, it's my prayer this morning that as we look into this that, that we would put away, with the help of God, our selfish and our prideful, judgmental attitudes. And that we would make a sincere effort to see people through the eyes of God. Ask God to help us see people as He does, with love and with mercy. After all, I note here, the end of verse 13, mercy rejoices against judgment. Or the NIV say, mercy triumphs over judgment. You see? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, among the many important things that I see in this passage, I see these three thrusts. It's almost a tongue tester. These these three thrusts. The first is in verse 1. Don't show partiality. Very clear. Don't show partiality. Verse 8, but instead show love. Speaks about that royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't show partiality, but instead show love. And verse 13, show mercy. Love and mercy should be our response to those who are different than we are or to those who are different then what we think is right, whatever that is. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. But those who are different than what we think show love, show mercy. Now, Scripture is not silent at all on this matter of, of partiality. And, and verse after verse gives us clear understanding of what God thinks about it. And so I'd like to take a look. For the next few moments, we're going to go through some scriptures in the Bible and get a feeling for what God thinks about partiality. And then at the end, we're going to look just briefly. And I say briefly because let me just mention one thing. It is my goal this morning to make less comments. Now, maybe you think that's funny. I don't know. But if you've heard, you've heard me for a few years now and you realize that I maybe one of my unlikable gifts is, is uh, 
filling up whatever time I have. Um, and so I want to try to work in that area. I know sometimes I preach a little long, and I trust that, that I have not been a burden to you in that way. But I am setting a goal for myself this morning to perhaps speak less. Uh, not that I'm not concerned about what God has for me to share, but such is the case. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19 and verse 15. We're getting an overview here of what God thinks about partiality. And, and these are in various contexts, as you'll see throughout the Bible. Here are some various laws that uh, Moses was passing down to the people. 19.15, Ye shall do no unrighteous Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Okay, so he implies there that when you show, when you show preference to one or the other, you are not judging righteously. You are not judging fairly. And God says, you ought not do that. Show no difference between them, but judge righteous judgment. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. And here, uh, Moses is speaking to the people. He's, he's appointing leaders. And he's, he's giving these words with that in mind. Verses 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. I charged your judges at that time saying, Hear the causes between your brethren and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment, but ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. And then he goes on to say that if you find something that you don't know how to judge, just come to me and I'll help you. <laughs> Okay, let's move to chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 17 of Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty, and a terrible or awesome, which regardeth not persons, he's not partial, nor taketh reward. You can't bribe God. He doesn't take bribes. Okay, he's not partial, and he doesn't take bribes. That's really what it's saying here. Now, let's move to Proverbs. Proverbs 24, verse 23. Proverbs 24, verse 23, reads this way. These things also belong to the wise... It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. These are the sayings of the wise. Wise people, listen up. It's not good to be partial. Mark 12, verse 14. Let's move here into the New Testament. Mark 12, verse 14. And here is the story about the questions that came to Jesus about should they pay taxes to Caesar or not. And this is not Jesus talking here, but this is the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians that came to Jesus. In verse 14, when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest 
not the person of men, but teaches the way of God in truth. Now, this was, this was their understanding. They understood this. And no doubt they got it from Old Testament teaching, okay? But they understood that this was a characteristic of God, that you're a man of integrity, you aren't swayed by men, because you really pay no attention to who they are, at least on the outside. That's not what's important to you, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They knew that. That was their understanding of God. Go to Acts chapter 10. Let's see uh, what the Apostle Peter had to say about being partial. Acts chapter 10. Here we have the story uh, where, where Peter was just pretty sure that, that salvation was for the Jewish people, that the Jews were God's chosen people, salvation was for them, and, and he, was, he just wasn't sure about this Gentile part, okay? Well, Peter had a vision earlier in this chapter, in chapter 10. And note verses 34 and 35. This, is, this was then Peter's response to the vision. 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of person, persons. Or he, he's saying here that I now realize, oh, okay. It's like he's, it's been revealed to him now. I didn't used to see it that way. But God brought him this vision. He now says, I now realize how true it is that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Anyone, in every nation, wherever you're from, it doesn't matter. If you do righteousness, if you fear the Lord, you're accepted with him. Romans 2.11 a short verse here that's right and clear and to the point, but it's also in the context of Jew and Gentile and so forth. Romans 2.11, we read, For there is no respect of persons with God. No respect of persons with God. Turn to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12, some very practical verses here. And note verses 3 through 5. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Now, let me just, let me just mention something here, because it's very important. We're here this morning as a body of believers. We are the family of God. Okay? And, and the Apostle Paul makes that very clear here. He refers to the, to the body. We're together. We're a body. Yes, we might do various things. We have different responsibilities. But we're one together. We're the body of Christ. Okay. Now, I find it interesting to note that James, he also begins chapter 2... With these, with these words, my brethren, or my brothers, which is, is a family term. My brothers, my sisters. And, and in fact, he uses, he uses that term, uh, those words, many times throughout, throughout his writing in James. My brothers, my sisters. He's, it speaks of togetherness. You know, God intended families 
to be a unified unit. God intended families to pull together, to watch each other's back, to stick up for one another. That's what God intended families to be. And so families, behind families is an understanding of unity. That's God's intent. However, partiality speaks of division, a pulling apart, dividing out. You're here, you're here, you're here. No, that's not what God intended. And so James says, my brothers, it's a family term, and I note that here also in Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul makes it clear here that we are a part of the family of God. We are together. We should be pulling for one another. We should be unified. Partiality should not be named among us as believers in the church. Let's turn to Galatians. Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28. And here we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, and we could add, without doing injustice to the scripture, there is neither white nor black, there is neither rich nor poor, and you could go on down the line. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You've heard that. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all are on the same playing field in Christ Jesus. There is no partiality. Now we could go on. That's a sprinkling of what the scripture has to say. There's, there's many more and, and we'll note a few in just a little bit. Let's go back to our text. Now, in James chapter 2, back to our text, and I noted uh, the interesting thing about, about my brethren. The fact is, James uses either brethren or my brethren or my beloved brethren some 15 times in, in his writing here. It's a family term. It speaks of, well, it, it speaks in different ways. One thing it, it does, he's reminding us that this is not written, this book was not written just to society in general. No, it was written to church people. <laughs> it was written to believers, my brothers and sisters. It was written to us, people who would consider ourselves as church people, religious people, believers. His choice of words also reflects his heart of love for people. James was known as a good man, a very kind man. And in fact, he was well-liked within the church as well as within the community, in society. He was a very likable man. He was very kind and good. And, and that's reflected in his words. My brethren, my beloved brethren. And so we see, we see his kindness, but yet he's very straightforward too. He has, he has something to share. It's not popular but he's going to share it, and he shares it kindly. He also uses rhetorical questions uh, to help the people see their own errors. Now, Jared used a similar technique in his Sunday school lesson this morning with the men. He, he brought a number of questions to us, which is actually a very effective way of teaching because it makes you ponder, and it makes you, it makes you come to conclusions yourself without being told right in your face, do this and do this and do that, or you should do this and you should do that. No, as questions are brought, inwardly you ponder and you come to conclusions yourself. In other words, you, you end up condemning yourself. 
or it could be said other ways. But here in this passage, in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, he asks questions, which helps the people clearly see their own error. In the first, in the first verse, he clearly reveals the problem. Verse, verse 2 through 4 or so, he, uh, he, he gives a scenario. He gives the illustration, and then he begins to ask rhetorical questions, which helps people to see, yeah, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, this, this is me. I am struggling with this, or so on and so forth. Okay, let's now note eight reasons from this passage why we should not show partiality. Eight reasons we should not show partiality, and the first is in verse 1. Partiality contradicts faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. Partiality contradicts faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. Now, the King James makes it a little bit harder to understand the point there. Let me read it in the NIV. We read this, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Or you could say, my brothers, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, don't be partial. Don't show partiality. And the key emphasis in this verse is glory. He's the Lord of glory. You see, at the root of partiality is a craving for glory. It's a craving for human glory. At the root of partiality is pride. It's pride. I just just want to get a little glory out of this. And so with that comes a a desire to be exalted, right? That's that's part of pride. Be exalted. And and as you as you try to exalt yourself, a part of that is also belittling people. Because maybe they're where you want to be, but you just don't want to admit it, and you don't want them to know that. And so a part of exalting yourself is belittling them in some way or other. I say it, at the root of partiality is a craving for human glory. But James' point is this. If you know Christ as the Lord of glory, if that is real with you, if he is in your heart, in your life, you won't be controlled with this craving. No, not at all. But instead, Christ will be your glory. Christ will be that which is is exalted in your life, not yourself. But it comes about by knowing Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory in your heart, in your life. Secondly, partiality reveals a judging heart and behind it, evil thinking. We note that in verses 2 through 4. Partiality reveals a judging heart and behind it, evil thinking. Number three, partiality to the rich contradicts God's heart. Verse 5. Partiality to the rich contradicts God's heart. Now, have you ever thought about it that God seems to have a special place in his heart for poor people? God has often chosen those who are poor to do great things for him. Why is this? Why is this? 
Maybe it's because they're more available. Maybe it's because they're more willing. Maybe it's because they have a better sense of how to trust. That's important. What was the very first thing that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? I found that interesting to ponder that. The very first thing that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or Luke's account reads this way, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's the first thing he said. And that's the Sermon on the Mount. That's packed with everyday power for the Christian life. And he starts with, you know, he could start with a number of things, couldn't you? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed be ye poor. And then the reward for those. Uh, think about Mary. We're getting close to the Christmas season. Of course, we could think about her any time of the year. But Mary, this is what she said. After the angel came to her and told her what was to come to pass, we read this in Luke 1.48. She said, For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. In other words, I'm so lowly. I'm poor. I'm, I'm not worthy. But then again, who is God looking for? And in verses 52 and 53, Mary says this, He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. I say God has a special place in his heart for poor people. Poor people in various senses of the word, you understand what I'm saying. Poor people. Let's turn to this passage together, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And note here the ones that God often chooses to do his work. And to speak truth into the lives of people around us, into the world around us. 1 Corinthians 1.26 For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, speaking about humble things here, lowly things, poor things, God hath chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Or in other words, <laughs> that no flesh should, should say, aha, look what I have done. They should not bring themselves before God and say, look what I have done, God. No. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. In other words, you are not of yourself. What you have is really not of you. It's of Jesus Christ. What you have that's of any value is of him. And what he has is from the Father. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. What you have, the good that you have in life, is not your own. And the Apostle Paul is making this very clear. What you have comes down from the Father through Jesus Christ. 
The good that you have in life is truly from him. And so he says there that God often uses things that you would think are no option. God often uses things that you're like, that's ridiculous. He uses those to bring himself more glory. We could even go back to the lesson that we had this morning in Sunday school about Elijah. Why did he keep throwing water on? We discussed that a little bit. Why did he keep throwing water on? Hey, he took it to the point of, well, he took it past the point of possibility, (laughs) humanly speaking. He took it past the point of possibility. Hey, this is never going to work. And then this has to be of God. It's, It's that concept. This is not human. No, this must be of God. God loves to do that. It proves himself strong. The glory goes to him. So I say partiality to the rich contradicts God's heart because he has often chosen the poor people for himself. We see that through scripture. Number four, then, partiality dishonors people who are created in the image of God. Verse six, the first part of verse six, we read, oh, back here in James again, we read this. But ye have despised the poor, or you have insulted the poor, or you have dishonored them, or you have created, or you have, I'm sorry, you have entreated, you have entreated them shamefully. Partiality dishonors people who have been created in the image of God. And I note this, um, Job, Job caught on to this. I read a uh, verse or two here in, in Job that I find I find very fascinating. Job was well aware of this, and he brought this to light. Chapter 34, verse 19, and it's, it's in a question form here. He says, verse 18, Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked, and princes, ye are ungodly? How much less to him that accepts not the person of princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. In other words, God has created them all. We're made in the image of God. How can we rightly say that that you're good and you're bad, and I like you and I don't like you, and I'm going to put you over here and I'll put you over here? Hey, God created them all. And so partiality dishonors people who are created in the image of God. Fifthly, then, we note this, that partiality to the rich backfires and becomes your downfall. We note that in verses 6b through 7, last part of 6 and going into 7, uh, he asks some questions there. He says, hey, look, (laughs) aren't rich people the ones who are exploiting you? Aren't rich people the ones who take advantage of you? They're the ones who drag you to court? Really? It's often the rich people that are doing those things. Aren't rich people the ones who, who proudly speak against God as if they, you know, are in control. And and here you are trying to kiss up to them. Really? He gives them them once again some rhetorical questions that cause them to consider that partiality to the rich, or we could say in other areas of life as well, it often backfires and becomes our downfall. Number six, then, partiality contradicts the royal law, verse 8. The royal law, what is the royal law? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And I, 
I found this interesting. This is what Adam Clark had to say about the royal law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself is a royal law, not only because it is ordained of God and proceeds from his kingly authority over men, but because it is so useful, suitable, and necessary to the present state of man. And as it was given us, particularly by Christ himself, who is our king, as well as prophet and priest, it should ever put us in mind of his authority over us and our subjection to him. Now, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And then it's, I found it interesting when, when someone asked him once, what is the greatest commandment? He said the number one commandment, and then he said the second one right along with it. Well, they didn't ask for the second one. Why did he do that? Along with it was you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those two are inseparable. You cannot truly love God and not your neighbor. You cannot truly say, yes, Lord, I love you, and you are my Savior, and I honor you, but then you over there and you over there start dividing out among the people of God or among your neighbors or whoever. The two don't go hand in hand. Loving God and loving each other go hand in hand. They're inseparable. And Jesus made that clear in that instance as well as others. Number seven, partiality is sin. It's sin. And he makes that very clear in verse, verses 9 through 11. If ye have respect of persons, ye commit sin. And, and James here in writing makes it very clear that to favor some people and to, to disregard others based on outward factors is sin. It's not just an unwise decision. It's not just something that we should be a little more careful about. It's sin, and we need to view it in that way. So if we're giving place to partiality, it needs to be confessed. It needs to be conquered. I say it's a package full of pride that has no place in the life of the Christian. It's contrary to the heart of God. Number eight, then, partiality is not mercy. Verse 13, partiality is not mercy. Now, this is what the NIV reads. It says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Is that what you want? Is that how you want to be treated? No. You want, and I want, we expect mercy from those around us. That's what we expect. That's what we want. Why then are we so quick to pass judgment on a brother or a sister or a neighbor or whoever? You see, to the flesh, mercy appears weak. It feels like giving in. And to the flesh, judgment appears to be strength. All right, I'm going to lay it down. And that feels like strength on the flesh side of things. But in reality, and in the context that we're looking at this morning, heartfelt mercy is strength. And, it, and it, it's a sign that the Spirit of God is alive and well, that it's working within us. And in the context we're looking at this morning, unjust judgment is a sign of weakness. It's a sign that we, that we, are, that we are giving into the flesh, that we're responding in a wrong way. Once again, what side do you want to be on? 
I want to be on the mercy side, don't you? I believe we all do. But ponder for a moment what you deserve. Ponder for a moment what we deserve. And yet, and yet what God has given us. Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, that calls for death, right? Hath quickened us together or made us alive through Christ. That's beautiful. God does not give us what we deserve. God responds to us in mercy and love. The new, uh, the new manager of our shopping center there at Hupps Mill Plaza He's been stopping by frequently for the last while, getting things up and rolling there. And uh, every time you ask him, how are you doing? You know, just that normal greeting. You don't necessarily expect a big conversation, but how are you doing this morning? He responds, better than I deserve. And he always has a big smile on his face. I don't know what his relationship with the Lord is, but it speaks to me. How are you doing? I'm better than I deserve. Can we not all say that this morning as Christians? We are better than we deserve. We deserve death, but God is rich in mercy and love. Let's bring this to a close. The peril of partiality. The peril of partiality. Ponder these things. How do we view those who have experienced tragedies in life? Whether it's physical tragedies, financial tragedies, relationship tragedies. How do we view them? What is our attitude towards them? How do we view those who are less fortunate than we are in various ways? How do we view those with mental or physical handicaps? I know as a, as a youngster, I didn't always view them in a very right way. Children, remember that they are created in the image of God, just as you are. They are special to God. How do we view them? Do we put them in a class over here? What is our attitude towards those? How do we view other church groups, whether it's more conservative than we are or more liberal? It's easy for us sometimes to think that where we are is just the right place to be, and this way or that way just doesn't cut it. How do we view those? How do we view those who seem to struggle a lot spiritually? Maybe more than I do. How do we view those who find it hard to express themselves? What's our attitude towards those? How do we view those who don't exactly agree with me, with you? What's our attitude towards people like that? And are we showing partiality or are we showing true spirituality, which is really love and mercy? May we be challenged to see people through the eyes of God. After all, mercy triumphs over judgment. May God help us. We'll call for a song.